so I'm very happy to be here back in Yucca Valley for the 37th year. Kind of amazing. And this morning I want to continue the collective conversation on what they call in Zen the great matter, which is death and identity and the heavenly messengers. How many of you have sat with the dying in hospice or in other ways? How many haven't? Where that's yet ahead for you? It will happen. Good. And, and, and it's important and moving and special. How many of you... Well, I have to give a little context for this. Um, I helped to organize a big meeting of 230 Buddhist teachers um, a couple of years ago on the East Coast. and. We were polling the teachers in various fashions about their understanding, their problems, and so forth. And then we asked, in really honest ways, all right, how many of you believe in more than one life, believe in rebirth? Um, kind of a line down the middle of the room. About half of them crossed the line, yes. Half of them didn't. A bunch of them just straddled the line in the middle. Um, how many of you believe um, that there is some kind of life after death? How many don't? How many straddle the line? Yeah, good. Okay. Um, if we were to incorporate themes of what's up for you this morning, if I'm able to, uh, given that this is now headed toward the end of this second retreat, um, even without a mic, you can just kind of raise your hand quickly. What, uh, you know, what do you hope that I might touch on? A word or two or three? Anybody? Grief. Grief? Okay. And I guess you've done some of that this week. What happens? Great. You want all the answers, right? Hmm? <laughs> what happens next? Yes. What did you say? Non-duality, as opposed to duality. You have to watch out for those non-duality people, by the way. There. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> at death. At and after. Good. Any other questions? What? Awakening. What's that? Yeah, exactly. And we sleep. Isn't that wonderful? And then we get worried about going to sleep. Okay. Really living, now. living now. How to prepare for death and practice. Who dies? Thank you. Who's going to be there to... Thing. Who's going to be there, what? To think after you die? Uh -huh. So it's sort of the same who dies and who will be there to think about it. Okay, well, no problem. <laughs> because I'm, I'm going to give away the plot. Before the end of the morning, we are going to do a past life regression. So you'll get to have some... Not everybody, but some of you might have some weird experiences which you can share with one another. And that will and maybe we'll go through some 
past deaths too, which is as interesting as past lives. They're actually connected, as you'll see. So it helps to hear your topics and themes and questions. So my mom just died a couple weeks ago, 91, and peacefully for the most part. But it wasn't completely peacefully. If you've done hospice work or sat with people who are dying, mostly she was ready, 91, enough. Um, She was also losing a lot of her memory. But in the last days, um, there'd be moments where she'd hold her hands up, her eyes sort of half closed, and say, help, help. And then I'd, you know, touch her shoulder and kind of hold her and reassure her. She didn't want her body touched very much. It was, like, distracting to her. And I'd say, it's okay. It's really all right. It'll be fine, and it's actually going to get better. You'll see. She'd go, oh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, you know, and relax. Um, So what does it mean to be with somebody in the process of dying? Not to speak of ourselves. And how do we... How do we face this mystery of birth and death with a wise heart? So Ajahn Chah, my teacher, when he um, first responded to this invitation to send monks to England, Ajahn Sumedho, who many of you know, was the first senior monk who'd been an abbot there, um, to go to England, um, and they had a little apartment, a couple of monks in Ajahn Chah. Um, and it was in downtown somewhere in London before they had their forest monastery. And Ajahn Chah insisted that Sumedha go out with his alms bowl every morning. He said, for several reasons. He said, I know you don't get much. Much. You didn't get anything. One time people put a little food in there, you know, walking by somebody put like a cliff bar or something in there. And then, you know, a kid walked by and looked in there and took the cliff bar out. Right? <laughs> so, but Ajahn Chah said, if you don't go out with your alms bowl, uh, then people will never learn how to take care of a monk. So you have to go. And then you, if people ask, you stop and you explain that you're an alms mendicant. It happened that he was walking near Hyde Park through the park there one morning and some guy was jogging, some very fit, you know, entrepreneur or whatever, and stopped and said, what are you? And Ajahn Sumedho said, I'm a Buddhist monk, I'm actually a forest monk. Um, and I'm out on alms round, just receiving whatever offerings, that's how we live. Um, but we actually have a little apartment, that's all we've been offered and we take what's offered, but we usually live out in the forest. And the man looked at him and said, oh, I've been wondering what to do with this beautiful forest I have down <clears throat> in uh, Cantor, wherever it was. Um, could I, it'd be lovely to have some monks there. May I make a little offering? And he put in a little piece of paper and offered them 80 acres of land that became Jithurst Monastery. So it pays to go out and, you know. <laughs> but here's the important, here's the important point for us, because we're talking about the heavenly messengers, Right. <clears throat> the other reason Ajahn Sah said that you have to go out every morning, even if you get nothing in your bowl, is because you are the fourth of the heavenly messengers, and you don't know but that the Buddha to be, the next Buddha, or one of the next Buddhas, is there, you know, walking down one of the market streets in London, and will look up and see you and go, oh yes, 
oh yes, there is a there is a way to follow and I must find this way. So you have to carry that. And in fact, what Ajahn Sumedho was carrying was the teachings of death of the deathless, of that which transcends birth and death. And his monastery in England, many of you know of it, is called Amravati, which is, uh, means the deathless. The gates to the deathless are open. So you have to go out and offer to the world of birth and death a different vision. Now what is that? What does that mean? <clears throat> when Ajahn Chah practiced as a monk, he became a monk as a young man, and being one of those the way young men are, you know, is there anything difficult to do around here kind of young men, um, became an ascetic in the forest and lived in the caves and practiced out in the wilds for years and did samadhi practice and visions in jhana and had all kinds of insights and so forth. And he went to see Ajahn Man, who was a, the most well-known meditation master of the last century of the forest teachers of Thailand and Laos. After about eight years of traveling and practicing ardently, and he said, may I have a consult with you, basically. Ajahn Man said, certainly. So he stayed there, and that next day he sat with him, and he said, here are the insights, here are the visions, and by here's the, here's the understandings I've come to, you know, dissolve my body in this way, see the nature of this and that, and have these samadhi jhana experiences. And Ajahn Man just shook his head, and he said, Cha, you've missed the point. He said, those are just experiences. All those years, those are just experiences. The only question is, to whom do they happen? Who is having these experiences? Turn your attention back to what is best translated as the one who knows. This was the language Ajahn Chah. Turn your attention back to the knowing, to the consciousness itself, because this is the gateway to the deathless, the gateway to liberation. All those are changing experiences, but who are you really? Um, And so that became the teaching that Ajahn Chah carried underneath all the other forms that he taught, um, which is to rest in awareness itself. You could call it loving awareness. That way it's clearly not a judgmental awareness to become loving awareness, that you are the awareness that knows experience. And yet, like a mirror, uh, which is an image that the Buddha used at times, consciousness knows experience, but when the mirror, you can bring in front of the mirror pleasant experiences, painful experiences, horrible demons, beautiful, you know, gods and goddesses, and the mirror simply knows what's there. Now, this sounds like a nice kind of Dzogchen-y type teaching, right? Cool. But what does it speak to us in our own direct experience? It's very simple. When you go back to your room, look in the mirror, and you will notice that you have aged, right? Sagging, wrinkling, losing fur whatever. It just happens, okay? But the weird thing is that when you look in the mirror and you notice that you've aged, 
you don't necessarily feel older. Everybody know that experience? And that's because in that moment, you recognize, oh, it's drooping, you know, it's getting, it's changing its color, it's sagging, it's whatever it does. Wes said, the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard. That's his description of it all, right? It's aging. But consciousness, that's just the body. And you're looking and say, well, look at that animal, you know, it's getting a little wrinkly. Um, but the consciousness that knows is there apparent to you in that moment saying, don't feel older, because consciousness doesn't exist in time. The body is born and dies and it exists in time. But awareness itself is timeless, deathless, unborn, undying, transparent like the sky, like a mirror. And that's not far away. It's right there in your own experience. What's required is that shift of identity. As, uh, as Ajahn Man said, you missed the point. You're worried about the experiences. Look into the one who knows. Become the knowing, the one who knows. Now, when I first started to meditate very intensively in a monastery, I remember I was doing this Mahasi practice where you would sit and walk 18 hours a day, you know, and then take a little bit of sleep and then get up and do it again. I did that for more than a year in silence, just trying to see where it would take me. Um, And one afternoon, I was really tired. I didn't, I liked my sleep and I wasn't sleeping that much and I was pushing it, you know. And I, I started falling asleep. I said, all right, I'll let myself have a little nap but I don't want to sleep very long because I'm going to get enlightened. That's what I thought in those days, you know. We all have our delusions. Um, and um, so I said, I'll lie down on the wooden floor of my hut. That way it'll be uncomfortable. I won't lie on my little mat. And after a little bit, I'll wake within 15 or 20 minutes. That's my intention. Back on my zafu. So I lay down and 15, 20 minutes later, I got up turned around and very slowly walked. It was kind of a long, narrow little hut to the other end and there was a little window out. And I saw in the distance my teacher sitting outside of his hut and there was a little garden and he was talking to somebody. Very slowly, mindfully, I was doing kind of the real super slow zombie thing, you know, very, very slow. And then I turned around. I thought, somebody's in here. And there was a body lying on the floor just where I had laid down. And I went, oh, that's me. You know, and it was the first of many out-of-the-body experiences. They're not uncommon for people who've had accidents or surgery. I mean, you've had out-of-the-body experiences, just to know. See, there you go. But it was another beginning of the teaching that who we are is not this physical body. We inhabit it. You get it. But it's not your identity. In Bali, they say that the people who are closest to the gods are newborns who've just come in and their spirit has just taken the clothing of a body. And people who are very close to the end of life who are about to release it. And the people farthest from the gods are middle-aged people with mortgages, basically. <laughs> right? So when you are present for old age, sickness, death, the question is, who are you really? And the Buddhist texts begin, and Theravada, Tibetan, all, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, 
do not forget your true nature. Do not forget who you really are. And so when you have explored and started to shift identity from the believing this body is who you are, the content of experience, to becoming the loving awareness, which is what you are, the witnessing of it, then you can actually be present with an understanding heart for people who are going through all the changes that incarnation brings you. Now the thing is that even as you practice in this way and you have some sense of this, which you can and will do one, probably don't have time for two practices, but you've been, most of you have been practicing a lot so you understand at least in your own practice ways what I'm talking about, you will be tested. So you'll think you understand or you'll feel like, okay, I'm not the body, I am the awareness and the consciousness. And even the I am the consciousness when you look deeply dissolves and you realize there is consciousness. The whole sense of I as separate also starts to dissolve. So when I came back from the monastery in the 1970s, I had been practicing very intensely and had this profound equanimity. My mind was so still. Oh my gosh, I, it makes me want to go back on retreat, actually. I need it. But, and then I was driving on, a, on the mass pike on the freeway. And a truck I had lost blew a tire and all the stuff started to spin off the tire. And cars around were swerving and I started to swerve and it was like, okay, I'm about to die. And one part of me is, oh, I'm about to die. How interesting. So much equanimity. Really, really peaceful. Another part of me, my body grabs the wheel, tightens and starts to... It's as if there were two people in there. There was the part that had a great deal of equanimity and the body that's saying, not yet, baby. We're going to hang in there and we're going to... You know, and they both have their truth to them because the animal body wants to live as well. You know, so later when five years ago or six years ago, whenever it was that I passed out in front of a retreat and then started to have all these tremors and passed out again, had all these neurological problems and then was misdiagnosed with something where they said, you have this genetic disorder, which I do have, um, but the misdiagnosis was um, because this is happening quickly. It was, I saw this, had all these tests and a few weeks later it got worse and worse. You have this disorder, you will be probably dying relatively soon within this year, um, and also it's accompanied by loss of memory and dementia. It was not the news I wanted to hear. Um, I thought I'd have a more peaceful death in some way, and I got frightened. Even though I'd sat with the charnel grounds and done my own death meditation and things like that, um, I was surprised how scared I got and how much anxiety. I thought, oh my God, people live with anxiety all the time. I have so little of it in my life. Um, and it took a while to kind of regain my balance with that. Turned out it was the wrong diagnosis that, that helped. Um, and I'm, I'm mostly better. But it wasn't just that. It was just that it took its time. Um, so I went and remember going and telling Ramdas about this, you know, talking about this with him. He said, oh yeah, I flunked the test several times, you know. Um, where I thought I'm really chill with, you know, death, and then it came as a, wait a second, it's not quite as easy as, you know, I've been telling people. Um, so you will be tested in some way. And I just came back from teaching a big event in Seattle on Buddhist psychology for 700 people. 
and it was lovely and we did all these we did equanimity and compassion practice and metta and resting in awareness and all these trainings and so forth and in between people would come up to me and talk about their child who died you know or their son with mental illness you know or their partner who had a stroke and they're having to take care of them you know what do I do or my daughter who's a meth addict or something you know and I have to take care of the grandchildren you know or the nurses there was a few of them who came who work in the um, neonatal ICU taking care of these tiny little preemies where a fair number of them die you know and what do you do with that and it's not just somebody telling you the story it's their son it's their spouse it's the person they care about the most in the world you know and then there's a lot of emotion with it right I mean somebody asked about grief so I was teaching with Pema Chodron in San Francisco an evening on compassion um, and there was two or three thousand people it was a big hall and uh, at the end we were taking questions and this young woman stood up uh, and she said in this quavering and very raw voice um, my partner just committed suicide ten days ago and she was so shaken and so upset and you know it's pretty wild actually because suicide is a very complicated thing Um, there's grief but also there's guilt you know what did I miss what could I have done there's anger how dare you you know how could you do this a shame there's every intense emotion all of it gets triggered by suicide it's a very complex and powerful and so she was shaking and Pema just said "Ah, feel your feet breathe bring in compassion hold the whole experience the grief the anger the fear the loss the, just be, be, become held by the goddess of compassion and it, you could feel her begin to settle down a little bit um, but it was still really intense and then I could feel how lonely she was um, so I asked how alone she felt how many others in this room have also experienced the suicide of someone you love who's really close to you in your family or close by you don't have to raise your hands although you could because um, I asked it in that room and I don't know 200 people stood up and I said would you please to this young woman would you please look around and and those of you who are standing just you know offer her your gaze and I tell you the room turned into a temple it was like there was her heart that was torn open and here were 200 people saying we're with you we understand yes so who are you and what is natural and how do you stand or sit in the presence of this mystery and Ajahn Chah would do different kinds of teachings but there was an old nun who came to see him at one point and she said give me teachings about death she was getting close and he said why do you want to know about death old woman you know he used to poke fun at people he said that's the language of children 
Aren't you wiser than that? He said, there is no death. There was no one born, no one to own things. This body isn't who you are, and neither are the thoughts or the feelings. Certainly not your possessions. No one is born, no one dies, no self. You know, you talk about death, it's the language of children. Remember who you really are. You are the unborn. You are consciousness itself. And you could feel in that the whole circumstance change, not because he was giving some teachings, but because he was there, because he was resting in that knowing. The Anguttara Nikaya. It seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. And this is the wild mystery. You feel, me too, got this whole life and personality and identity and things you love in people. Um, It's temporary. That's really kind of crazy. Isn't it? So how do you navigate the unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears that make up human incarnation? Because just look around the world and it's got both. The charnel grounds full on one hand and then the new life springing forth. No matter what you do, it will come back. As the poet Pablo Neruda says, you can, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring that there's both death and there's renewal, and that's us. That's what life actually is. So, contrasts of deaths. My mom, 91, losing her memory, really good-hearted person, gracious, easy, caring. So the people around her, she was in a, um, an aid song in Hayes Valley, in a assisted living. She was well cared for, and... You know, my brothers and I and family, we came around her, and there's kind of this wild thing, there's death, but there's also so much love that it was like a love fest at the same time. And she's lying there, and the, some days before we could tell her stories or make her laugh or things like that, you know. My twin brother, who's really um, badmash, they call it in Hindi, which means bad, um, but in a playful way. Um, so I'm saying, I asked my mom, what do you think happens when you die? She says, I don't know. It's a mystery. Everything's a mystery. She said, I'm not going to be here, but people are going to go to other planets. You know, They're going to do all these things. Because when she was a kid, said there were more horses on the streets in Philadelphia than there were cars, right? And the gaslighter. She said, I've seen so much. I don't know what's coming next. I said, well, what's going to come when you die? She said, I don't know, you know. And I'd been with my brothers. We'd just gone to watch a rocket launch at Vandenberg Air Force Base. My twin brother wanted to do that Atlas V rocket. It was really kind of wonderful and amazing. And so my twin brother grabs the, the bed where she's lying like this and says, Mom, you're going to leave your body. You're going to go on a trip, maybe like a rocket. And he goes, and starts shaking the bed. We're taking off. And everyone's face says, you can't do that. You're going to go to Mars. You're going to go beyond, you know. I mean... It's like, okay, we take death seriously, but not too seriously, right? So we're all around. But then a couple days later, it got harder for her. She had more pain. And then she had, you know, Frank, Franco will know it. Then she started to get the death rattle. 
which is basically just accumulation of fluid, you know. But it's a very hard thing to have somebody that you love not be able to breathe well. <laughs> you know, with each breath you think they're going to drown in their own fluids in some way. Then they gave her atropine, and that dried her up. Atropine, by the way, comes from belladonna, right? Um, and its name, belladonna, taken in the right dose, its Italian name, is because women in the middle or the dark ages or whatever would take a little bit of it because it would make you flush and your pupils would get dilated and it would purportedly make you more attractive in some way. I'm not recommending it, but anyway. I mean, this is what we do with our bodies. It's a really wild thing. You know, how will we attract one another for a while, right? Um, but then she became more peaceful, and at some point she said, oh, I see light. And my youngest brother, Kenneth, said, oh, Mom, how is it? How's that light look? Is it any good? She said, oh, it's good. He said, oh, great, enjoy it, you know, rest in that. So she had a relatively peaceful death most of the time. Um, and it is kind of amazing, though, because you watch the elements dissolve. Have you done that in here? Have you talked? Next one. Okay, so I won't read a whole passage about how the body and the elements, but there, it's, you'll, you, it's coming. You'll get that. You are that, by the way, so that's okay. But we'll get there. But it's so mysterious. It's like at the very end, <coughs> it's like being with a falling star because it's silent, and yet something momentous is happening and nothing at all. All these things. And the gates between the worlds open. Who are we? Now, my dad was the opposite. He was terrified of dying. He was a scientist, a biophysicist, and also a, <clears throat> a paranoid person um, in the um, DSM sense of that word. Um, the, the, the real deal. Um, and um, he had congestive heart failure. He had, had some heart surgery, but this time, when he was ready to die... Well, the time before, when before he had his heart surgery, when I thought he was going to die, everyone said his kidneys have shut down, his body function is gone. That was when you could go in the ICU for like 15 minutes. It was very intensive trying to keep him alive. And they said he's got a 10% chance to live. I went and I held his hand and breathed with him a little bit. Uh, and then because I thought I might not see him, even though he was an abusive and difficult person, he was still my father and I'd worked through a lot. And I said... I, and I said, I, you know, I don't know if I'll see you, Dad, but I just want you to know I love you. He took his hand, an arm which was intubated, all the tubes and wires and stuff, brought it up to his nose, shook his head like that was the smelliest thing you could ever say to a person. We don't say that shit in, my, in our family, right? Go away. You know, and um, I, he died in character. It was okay. It was all right. He was a strong-willed person. But what I realized, you know, I could have taken it personally, which you can around death, especially when it's your parents. But in fact, nobody ever said that to him. The reason he couldn't hear it is his parents never said it to him. He didn't know that. He didn't know what to do with that. Anyway, so he survived and lived another 10 years, and now he's 75 and back in the ICU. And because he built the, some of the earliest artificial hearts and lungs and all kinds of stuff in that, knew all this stuff, he kept looking and taught in medical school, he kept looking over at the monitor 
and make sure he hadn't died yet. <laughs> Seriously, about every few minutes, okay? Or he was afraid he'd die and no one would know. I said, you'll know, it's all right. You know, and then I said, so what happens when you die, Dad? <clears throat> said nothing, dirt, you know. He's a materialist, science. The brain creates things, and then when the brain's gone, that's it, right? Um, but he was so afraid that I'd sit there long days and get till late at night, be midnight, one in the morning, I'd get so tired, and I said, I've got to go home, I've got to go rest back to your apartment. And he would say, please don't go. Please don't go. So I would just stay, because people don't want, and they shouldn't be left alone. So I said, so what do you think happens? You think you just go back to dirt? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me tell you about my out-of-the-body experiences. Let me tell you about my past life memories. Let me tell you about various other things. And all around the world, people in all the other major cultures not only believe, but the mystics and the shamans and so forth have these experiences. Um, and I've sat with a lot of people who are dying or near-death experiences and they almost die and come back and they've seen light. And what's going to happen to you is that you will release your body, you'll float out, you'll see some form of light, you'll recognize that the body isn't who you are in some fashion or other, you know, and then you'll begin a whole different journey. Um, and he shook his head. I said, listen, you're a scientist, right? So at least you keep an open mind. And if it happens, remember, I told you so. <laughs> and so... Okay, so here we are, incarnate in a human body. I'm kind of peering at you all, thinking about this. Little fur at one end, or in some cases losing its fur, but and a few other patches of fur, right? As I like to say, a hole at one end where you stuff dead plants and animals and grind them up and glug them down through the tube. You ambulate in a bipedal way by falling one direction. You catch yourself, then you fall the other way. You catch yourself. You have vestigial tail, right? And vestigial claws that you needed, or maybe you still need, depending who you live with. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I was peeing the other day and just looking at all this water coming out, like you cycle water through this organism. It's, it's kind of a strange thing. Or sex. I mean, making love is a really cool thing. It's fantastic, in fact. But it is weird. <laughs> it is. We lick and suck on different parts of each other's bodies, right? Okay. We put different parts in different ways, right? Okay. And then a little squirt here and there, whatever. And then we make a new, oh, here's a new human being. Come on. This is really mysterious. Who are you and how did you get into the body? Because it's just not true that the body is who you are. And I remember Nisargadot, my teacher in Bombay, being asked um, how it was for him as an old man, you know, facing death. And he, he, he liked this sort of, he had an attitude anyway. He, stood, he said, how dare you call me an old man facing death? He said, I have nothing to do with this food body, this thing that's made out of japatis and dal. You think that's me? You know, this food body? Come on. 
He said, I was never born. I can never die. Well, what about God? We meet? He said, oh, the gods, they're just your imagination. He said, who I am is beyond all of that. And you want to talk to me about death? You know nothing. You know, go sit in the back. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but if you look in the Buddhist text, the Buddha says the same thing. Uh, when uh, he's approached by uh, a, a person, a man, who says, how is it, uh, blessed one? You know, you're a Buddha. I, I have a serious question to ask. How can we human beings live so as not to be seen by the king of death? And the Buddha's response, what's, which, what's the name of that guy who, who asked the Buddha that question? It starts with an M. It's not Magandhi, it's Mogarajan or something like that. Anyway, it's, I think it's in the Majjhima. And the Buddha says, for one who does not take sights and sounds and tastes and smell, for one who does not take this body, these thoughts and feelings to be I and mine, who does not claim as a self the five skandhas, the five aggregates, such a one is not seen by the king of death. And this is an amazing teaching. Or in the Anattapindaka Sutta, which is in the Machimanyakaya, and Anattapindaka, they're very, very sick and dying, this great benefactor. And the Buddha sends his wisest disciple, Sariputta. And Sariputta says, how are you, layman? Are you getting better? You know, are you feeling any more chipper? And Anattapindaka says, I am not better. I am not chipper. As a matter of fact, it's as if someone tied an iron band around my head and was tightening it and the, someone was firing up the forge and building fires around my body. He goes this whole description of how much suffering is in. And then Sariputta says, then you should contemplate thus. Self, I am not I. I am not visible objects. I am not the ear. I am not the sounds that touch it. I am not the nose, the tongue. I'm not the body and the sensations in the body. I'm not the thoughts or perceptions or this consciousness that's identified. I am none of these. Thus you should contemplate and liberate yourself from this identification with the body. And Anattapindika says, oh, that helps. First his response, thank you, that helps. It does. It's that very profound attachment not identifying, because identification is the game. And then he says, why have you never taught me this? And Sariputta says, this is the teachings that we have reserved for the monastic order. And Anattapindika says, may I ask of you in the Blessed One a request before I die, that you offer the, these deep teachings to us as lay people, as well as to the monastics. And so... You know, when you go to Amravati or when you read in the text, it says underneath the doors to the deathless are opened. It is through this practice of the shift of identity that the doors to the deathless are open. I don't know, am I speaking to your themes? Am I getting there? Okay, I have a little bit more to do and then we'll do one or two practices depending on the time that we have. And I'll take some questions too. All right, so here's Jack sitting up here, <clears throat> spinning these stories and so forth. How to understand this? You already know. You already understand. This is not something news that I'm telling you. We can identify. I mean, you identify with your opinions, sorry to say. 
You identify with your looks. You identify with your role. You know, you're the son or the daughter when you're with your parents. You're the parent when you're with your kids. You know, you're the uncle or the aunt when you're niece or nephew. You're the boss when you have employees. You're the employee when you have a boss. You switch roles all the time. Who are you? Identification has this mysterious capacity to, you know, I can feel myself. This is me. And I'll touch this hand and the skin is a little dry, like it's an object. And we're in the desert. I need to go and get some lotion to keep, you know, over the next couple of weeks to not be itchy. And then I become, this is me now. And I touch these fingernails and this one's a little long, needs to be trimmed. And so identification is here and that's the object. You can put your identification anywhere. You know, you can identify as a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Buddhist or whatever weird thing you want. And then you let go of it and you're something else later. But you know that that's not all of who you are. So Alice Walker writes, One day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happened, you just can't miss it. And you know it from walking in the mountains or listening to a magnificent piece of music and losing yourself or making love or sitting there at the bedside of someone who's dying or someone who's being born. You know, all these mysterious moments where the gates open and you remember that you're not just this separate self. You are separate in a tentative way, and you need to remember that separateness. As Ramdas says, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, right? You have sort of both sides of the equation. But it's not who you are. And I have a couple of other dear beloveds um, who told me the story of giving birth, a woman I know, colleague, who was quite young when she had her first baby. And it was, you know, back in the 60s, um, early 60s, I think. And she'd done a little bit of yoga practice, which was sort of rare then. Anyway, it was a really long and difficult, arduous labor, and she was left alone for certain hours in the hospital, which shouldn't happen, but did happen. And she was there, frightened, because it was so intense and it was going on and on and how can I bear this and do this the level of pain she said and then it wasn't just that she floated out of her body that's what it felt like at first but the body was so intense she said then what happened I'm lying there and I'm so afraid and I'm so frightened and I don't know what to do and I feel lost and my body's doing all this and then all of a sudden I became something different I became not me but all the mothers of the world. She said, something changed in my consciousness, and I realized at this moment that there were 230,000 other women in labor, you know, in Africa and in China, and that we were the mothers who were giving birth to the next generation, and that we were life itself giving birth to its new form of life. She said, and everything changed. That was the beginning, really, of her Dharma life, was that. So you know this. There's some way in which, in your own experience, you know that you're not just your body. You know that you're not limited in this way. 
You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has that beautiful book, No Death, No Fear. Do most of you know that? Is that part of your curriculum? It, it well might be. I would recommend it as a, in which he talks about realizing that as he walked in the moonlight missing his mother, who had died not long before, he said, all of a sudden, I realized that she was in me, that I was her, and that my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil with the moonlight on us, that she could never go anywhere because <clears throat> I was life continuing. So, you sit with the dying, the aging, the people losing memory. <clears throat> and I see is the aging part, especially being pe with people losing memory, that it is, um, it's death in slow-mo, basically. It is the bardo between the worlds happening while you still have a body. And so if you think that person's still going to be that person, um, you suffer a lot because you want them to hold that identity, but their memory and all those things are gone. But if you realize they've already started to make their transition, and it might take a year or in some cases five years or something like that, but they're in the bardo. You know, they're in the, they're in the transition between lives, um, and they're just doing it while they're still in their body. And then you can accept that. That's, they're not who they were anymore. But how to do this? Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out, for the gods will come, and they will fire up the forge and put you on their anvil and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. <clears throat> and so the suffering and the difficulty and the shock and all of that is actually not a problem. It's all messengers as the program is. It's all the wake up that says remember who you really are. And then as you do, you begin to trust that you can die and be reborn over and over. I mean, every morning you're reborn at breakfast. And at night, it's such a weird thing. How many people, you don't even have to raise your hand, long for a good night's sleep? I just want to go unconscious, please, for a long time, restfully. You know, and if you can't get it, how horrible it is, right? What a bizarre, talk about mystery, that mammals, you know, I don't know if lizards do it, but <clears throat> reptiles, anybody know? Reptiles sleep, they do, that's right, I take it back. But anyway, what a mysterious thing that we love going completely unconscious and losing our identity, and we have no fear of it at all. Our fear is actually that we're not going to get a good night's sleep. I mean, we are really strange creatures. But it's actually, oh, let me lie down and become completely unconscious and disappear. How great. <laughs> and then you have weird dreams. My mom came in my dream last night. Thank you, Mama. She was in her very thoughtful and considerate way. We're preparing the memorial for the end of next month. Do you need anything you boys need? I said, no, okay, you died. It's okay. That's all we needed for this memorial. <laughs> right. But my out-of-the-body experiences, which, you know, 20% of you have had, um, sitting with people who are dying, my own experiences of doing samadhi practice and jhana practice and metta where, or other practices where I literally dissolve my body into light, you know, and then send light out from my body. And that takes a lot of samadhi. And for me, it wasn't even that easy. I had to work hard to do it. But it's kind of cool that it happens. Uh, okay, you're not the body. You actually, each of you have your own 
way of having those experiences. Um, and um, when I first went to see Ajahn Chah, I didn't believe any of this stuff. He talked about, you know, the Buddhist cosmology a little bit, not that much. And I said, I don't believe that stuff. I'm son of a scientist. And he said, you don't have to believe it. You're born and you die moment by moment. Birth, all of the Buddhist teachings of birth and death happen every single day, every single moment. You don't have to believe anything. So from the beginning, I didn't believe anything. Now, I've shifted a little bit. I believe everything sort of changed, you know. Because of these experiences, very deep meditation, dissolving, becoming light out of the body experiences, being the loving awareness. But also, since we're just getting down here, taking peyote <clears throat> with this wonderful Don Jose Rios, 103-year-old Huichol shaman that I studied with. And, you know, rattling and puking and doing peyote all night, <clears throat> these rituals, and then becoming, you know, the redwood tree and the salmon and so forth, not just this body. Or taking LSD, not just in Haight-Ashbury, which I did, right, the little wagon in the Fillmore, whatever, <clears throat> take cups of tea. But, um, uh, I mean, doing it in a more formal way, and I remember lying there once and feeling a little bit stuck because you go through these death-rebirth experiences, which I also have done in holotropic breathwork that we've led in this room for 20 years. You know? And then the person who was guiding my session said, well, let's, let's use a little light to drive the brainwave, see what happens. And they brought a strobe light, so here I am tripping. right? I'm really <clears throat> high-dose LSD. And then they turn on the light, and it starts to flash white like that. Really brilliant strobe light. And I go, oh, the stars, look at this. Oh, And then the strobe gets faster and faster. And like in that moment in Star Wars where um, they first go to hyperspeed, you know, and everything, you know, turns black and then white and it turns upside down. And all of a sudden, I am not here anymore. I'm out in the vastness. Any sense of identity. I'm, galaxies are way back there, you know. Um, different kinds of tripping, basically. Um, and, and at different times also experiencing in-death rebirth process. For example, I had a one long trip where um, I kept coming back into life in the womb of someone um, and then getting aborted. And I had this conversation, good God, was it last night? Night before last, we had a dinner out, Michael Harner and... Sandra Harner, he's the head of the Shamanic Foundation and one of the world's great shaman experts. And uh, Stan and Christina Groff and a couple of other friends in honor of um, Angelus Arian, who we all work with for years together. And someone had asked me from, the, from Jerry Brown's office from Sacramento, there's a bioethics board that was created for California. <clears throat> about some of these really tricky questions, not just about abortion, but about mm, stem cells or the creation of different forms of life or things like that, and what should we do and what shouldn't we do. Michael and I are talking about it, and I said, it seems to me that instead of getting some philosophy or some religion about it, what you do is you go into a non-ordinary state, you know, and you become the, that particular creature, and then you ask it, you know, what is it like? 
So there I am, and Michael says exactly. He said, he said you tell the people up in Sacramento, I'll come and lead the, you know, a shaman's journey if they want bioethical questions, and they can, they can talk, talk about it, you know. I mean, find out from the inside. So there I am, and I'm this little tiny fetus, and then I can feel that I'm about to be aborted. And I didn't want to be aborted, because when life takes life, it, it has its own, there's a, uh, a life force in it, which you see, when the, even when it's time to die, the, the body doesn't die easily. It wants to hold on. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's this animal body. And so there I am, but I, I know, whoops, something's coming, and it's an abortion coming. Um, I actually went through seven of them in a row in this particular session. Um, but the inter- And then I started, there was this like little tiny high-pitched, like, you know, don't do this to me, and then gone, and then into the void, into, into a kind of luminous darkness, and then a little while later, whoop, pop back into another room. The interesting thing about it was that I didn't have much of a personality, I didn't have relations with people, I didn't have all the complex identity that's so hard to let go of at the end of your life. It was just the pure beingness that didn't want to let go. And then I cycled through it a bunch of times. You can believe it or not, I'll leave it to you. But since we're having this conversation, we actually have to have this conversation, you know, and not kind of make it, make it philosophical. How many people in this room have, as a man with your partner, or as a woman yourself, had an abortion? Half the room, probably, you know? So this mystery is not something far away. And you know Yvonne Rand, the wonderful Zen teacher who lived at Muir Beach for a long time, made a whole set of very moving rituals for water babies for stillborn, for babies that were born. Because if you pretend it's a medical procedure, um, you know, yet there's the grief, there's the loss, there's all the possibility. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when it isn't the right thing. It's not coming down on that at all. It's much more mysterious and complicated than that. Um, but it needs to be honored. We are in this process of giving birth all the time. And what do we do with this? All is mine made, says the Buddha. So I was there under the Bodhi tree um, in March in Bodh Gaya with all the pilgrims streaming by and the Tibetans doing their chanting and blowing their horns and the Chinese with their little drums doing a kind of, you know, Japanese chanting, Chinese chanting, Sri Lankan chanting, all this kind of river of pilgrims um, and just sitting there and then there's a place where there are the seven um, or twenty actually stone lotuses that was the Buddha's walking path so I did my walking there and kept thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh and how he you know when he walked well when he came to Spirit Rock a couple of times and you know, it was two or three thousand people on the hillside and we're sitting and meditating and then they give out apples and everyone does this very slow eating of an apple. That mysterious thing of putting another part of the earth into your body. You know, cheese from Wisconsin. Hi, I'm now partly Wisconsin, right? Or peaches from Georgia. I'm now the South, too. It's wild. 
And so we're, we're sitting there meditating, eating our apples, and, and then Thich Nhat Hanh walks out. And he walks so slowly and mindfully that the whole field of these 3,000 people goes, oh, right, mindfulness. It's like it was palpable. And then I thought about the Buddha getting up from his seat as I'm walking, you I'm walking there. And for 45 years, walking the muddy and dusty roads of India and coming into a village or a town with so much peace and so much presence and mindfulness like Thich Nhat Hanh that people would say, oh, wow, who is this guy? What does he understand? You know, let's talk to him. And the Buddha carrying the deathless, really carrying that understanding that you are not who you think you are. You are part of something so much bigger. And yes, you have an incarnation now, and that's fine. You know, it's like wearing clothes, right? You change them once in a while, wash them even if you're lucky. And sitting under the tree, chanting the Heart Sutra, form is not different than emptiness. Emptiness is not different than form. The Buddha's most profound realization of emptiness itself, that we are not the forms of the world. We are emptiness giving birth to form. We are consciousness, the field of consciousness that gives birth to form. Form is not different than emptiness. But because it also goes on to say, emptiness is emptiness and form is form. When Suzuki Roshi died, he said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. You know, maybe everyone will suffer because of the physical or the spiritual agony, but that's not a problem. It would be, if you had a limitless life, that would be the real problem for you. You know, if I suffer, that's just suffering, Buddha. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha. If you take human incarnation, you get joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, the ocean of tears, the unbearable beauty, birth and death. That's what incarnation is. And you get it for a while in this form, and then you get a new form. I have other stories to tell, but I'm going to stop here for a moment um, and pause. And let's just sit for a minute or two. I'm going to let you ask some questions, but just to hold these stories and
Who are you really? Are you this body that was little as an infant, and then as a young child, and then as a teenager, in your 20s and 40s and 60s? Changes all the time. Are you this body? Are you the feelings? Pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, sad, happy, excited, frightened? agonized, appreciative, loving, joyful, calm. Are you the thoughts, that river of thoughts? Opinions, are you your views? All so conditioned, all these conditioned experiences. Be the one who knows, says Ajahn Chah. Rest in loving awareness. You are loving awareness. You are the witnessing. Not the witness, but the witnessing itself. Relax into it, trust it. It is your home. Now, I want to go on to something experiential to do a past life regression. Um, <clears throat> we don't need, do we need to take a break? No. Okay. Why don't you stand up and stretch at least, do that. And anyone who's desperate can go run to the ladies' room and run back. Oh, or the men's room, but. It's not a break, though. We'll start in a couple minutes. And once you feel like you've stretched a bit, let yourself sit back down. 
And even though we'll give a few minutes for those people to come back in, comments or questions? Anything after all of this? And let's use the mic for this. James has it. Uh, Jack, I was just wondering if you could comment at all about um, when someone um, uh, is, is, is dying close to death and, uh, and then there's an intervention and they're um, kept alive. The natural process isn't, is, is, is aborted, actually. Um, are they in a bardo state? Are they, are they um, just in a long pause? Um, what, what would you say about consciousness? I'd, I'd have, I don't know that I can say anything in general. What makes you ask? Well, it's a personal experience where my husband had two major strokes, one in each hemisphere, and um, can't speak. Um, he, um, he's, he's on a, a feeding tube, um, and he um, is paralyzed. He's so, still alive. And he's still alive, but he's being kept alive on the feeding tube. He would have died. They wanted to put him in palliative care. Well, so the first and most important answer is, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> Somerset Maugham uh, said there are three rules for writing the great English novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are, right? <laughs> um, so it would be presumptuous for me to give you a, an answer. But I'll say this. Um, and I remember getting the teachings on the Bardo Tudo from um, Lama Kalu Rinpoche, that wizened old guy who looked like Yoda, basically. Um, and he said he talked about how in uh, in the in the Tibetan Bardo Tudo, that time changes. And I know this is true from meditation as well. So what we take as long and short periods of time. That's our earthly time. He said even after you die in the Bardo, there's there's waking and sleeping. Even in the bardo, he was talking about. But anyway, um, so um, for you, with your husband on the feeding tubes and so forth, it may seem like an eternity, a very, very long time. He may just be in a state. You know, he may be in between lives. It sounds like he is, pretty, pretty clearly. Um, But to say that it's long or short, or that that's problematic, um, in the vast scheme of time and birth and death. It's the particular death that he's having in this modern age in this particular way. Um, and unless he's in a lot of physical pain or suffering in some terrible way, then um, I'm not sure that the way we would put time onto it actually is relevant as much to his experience. A couple more, and then we'll go to our practice. It seems like we're a pretty anthropocentric species. We're anthropocentric, we, right? We think we're it. We focus a lot on ourselves. Mm. All the stories about rebirth are about, you know, mm. you can be reborn as a bug, I guess, but in general it's about coming back to another human birth. I, one of the reasons I'm a straddler is because I'm not, I'm, I'm just not sure we're it. I mean, I know there's a precious human birth and we have certain qualities and capacities, but um, can you comment at all about um, where it might be different than what's traditionally taught 
simply because it is our nature to be sort of self-referential. Again, I don't know, but I'll, you know, since we're sitting in this hall where I've taught with Stan Groff and Christina Groff, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 different times the holotropic breath work, and so this hall would be filled with more people lying down and doing this intense breathing for two or three hours straight with driving music, and it turns into Dante's Divine Comedy. Some people are lying there in ecstasy and just joy, you know, and dancing as they lie there, like streaming, you know. Others are becoming whales and eagles and, you know, worms and, and, and remembering. And the, the wild thing is that, you know, there's somebody who comes in afterwards report, I was a mother whale calving and describes what it was like. And then they go look it up on the Wikipedia or something. It's the way whales give birth. And they never read that before, you know. Other people are dying, lying there, and you know, and some are getting born, and they're pushing their way out the birth canal, and it's like all those records are in there because consciousness itself is what we are. We're this field of consciousness. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> Good enough. Thank you. One more. I'm a hospice vigil volunteer, and mm -hmm. I am often called to sit with people in their final hours, um, people who I don't know, mm -hmm. and I'm often alone with them. Mm -hmm. um, on a couple of occasions, I've been with them at the moment of their death. Mm -hmm. um, and I bring presence, and I bring compassion, but I'm wondering if there is something that would be helpful that I could be doing for those people at that moment? You know, in the Tibetan tradition, if you've taken the instructions in POA and stuff like that, I bet Frank has. Yeah. Did it help? Exactly. <laughs> he shrugs his shoulders. Um, there is the, you know, the Lama who kind of goes into your own consciousness and helps you leave from the top of your head and go into the pure light and things like that. Um, that's the problem with the Tibetan Book of the Dead and stuff like that. And I love Sogyal's book in many ways, Tibetan Book of the Dying, Living and Dying, but I don't have people read it very often because there's the scary parts. You know, if you don't do it right, you'll be born in the lower realm and the Tibetan demons are going to come and get you and stuff like that. We ain't going to see Tibetan demons. You know, you're probably going to see, like, advertising or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> It's just not how it works. It's not, right? That's what you get. Um, so, so I take all that stuff as in part culturally specific rather than being universal, even though each culture says we really know. Um, but I think that there's some way along what's beautiful what you said, your presence, your compassion, um, I, I would add a couple of things. One is um, a kind of fearlessness, or maybe a better word is trust. You know, that if you bring your trust, so that even when people are going through the death throes, which can happen too at times, there's some sense you'll get through this, it's okay. That it's as natural as giving birth, it's giving birth to spirit out of body. So bringing trust. And then for me, when I sit with people who are dying, there's also... 
I both use the words and I actually envision let go into light, let go into the ocean of love, into the luminous consciousness that is your true nature. And, and I feel that in myself. So there's some way in which I, I hope that I'm resonating with what will guide them in some way. Just that simple. There you have poa in, you know, micro, micro poa. My lama is shaking his head. It's okay. <clears throat> he always shakes his head. Um, okay, um, I'd love to continue this dialogue because it's really also interesting. But I want to make time for our past life regression and then for little groups to talk about it. So let me explain about this process <clears throat> and why we're doing it and, and so forth. Beside being trained in meditation and in, as a psychologist, I've had all kinds of other trainings in shamanic things and in different kinds of um, hypnosis and various other stuff like that. And um, one of the things that has intrigued me is past life regression. I don't do it very much because I don't teach cosmology much. I don't want to put belief systems on people. Uh, so I generally do this, it's kind of rare, on occasion with certain groups, like this is the theme of this group. Or in the teacher trainings that I do, we'll do past life regression or things like that. <clears throat> the last time I did it, one second. Was um, at the end of February, I was leading a trip in Burma. Oh, thanks, Sharda. Um, for the foundation for the people of Burma. And it was a whole group of donors and so forth. And we'd raised a great deal of money for schools and clinics and visiting these. Anyway, as part of the trip, um, we were out on a boat on the Irrawaddy River near Pagan, the ancient city with all these stupas in it. was sunset and I said, all right, I'll do past life regression for you all. Um, and when I've done it, whether it's in Asia uh, with people from Burma or here or whether it's in the Middle East in Israel or Palestine or whether it's, you know, with people in Japan or various people coming from different places, um, it's really a kind of simple guided, deep, very deep guided meditation practice. It's going to take 15 minutes or something, not that long. Um, people come to it with all their different beliefs. Some people don't believe in it at all. Some people really believe in it. doesn't matter. Turns out, the things that are interesting are that maybe half the people who do it have an experience. And the half or more who have that, maybe 60%, 70%, quite a few do, not everybody. Um, like every meditation, you know, it might, might be your day, it might not. Um, but um, the interesting thing is that the people who have the experience, it has, there's no mapping t together with, the one, with their beliefs. People who don't believe have the experience, people who do believe have it, and vice versa. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with your belief, it's just whatever happens. Now, I'm also not saying that it really is your past life. It may very well be. Um, I, as I said, I now believe in everything. You know, I've left my body, a luminous light, all these things and so forth. Um, we're made of mind. We're made of consciousness. So, of course. But you can see, as I said to my dad, you know, if it happens, remember I told you so. Um, so, um, the other thing that's interesting, and I think I'll do it in this process, it'll be a kind of simple guided meditation <clears throat> and I'm going to invite you to find a life that has um, some meaning, 
some lesson or some meaning for you at this time in your current life. Um, I'm also going to add a piece uh, of asking you to um, go to the end of that life and experience yourself dying and see what happens after you die. And if I work individually with somebody, which I might, um, we'd actually track through a number of different lives. And, and you start to get really what's kind of cool and interesting is, um, especially having done it with various people and just saying, well, what do you see? Is you start to be able to get used to people navigating through darkness, through light, through a kind of luminous darkness, through experience of consciousness without a body, through the impulses to get born or whatever. Um, and you start to realize, oh, this is the terrain that you can get to know and find your way around. So I'm not going to say any more than that. And you just have to let your experience be the way that it is. So let yourself relax. Um, and at the same time, you know, alert enough to do a meditation. close gently and come back to your breath and body just present here when with your breathing let your self quiet mind soften the heart and just become curious we'll do this little guided practice and see if anything happens. And, you know, whatever happens, it's, it's not usually like Cleopatra or something. It's much more ordinary than that. So, here you are. Seated quietly, opening your awareness to the mystery of incarnation, of birth and death. And I'd like you to imagine as you sit here to picture or envision any way you can, quite simply. That you've walked out into the desert behind the meditation hall here. And to your surprise, you find this, out in the desert, this beautiful stairway, this beautiful stone stairway that seems to descend into some other world. And you don't know where it's going to go. It turns out it's quite benevolent. You have a really good feeling about it, that this is something quite magic. And this is going to be your portal into a past life for today. So you envision, feel, or imagine yourself standing at the top of this long and beautiful staircase that descends down and down. 
And then you begin, we'll take it in sections. In the first 10 steps or so, you feel yourself stepping down into this staircase. And as you do, your body just becomes lighter, as if you can feel your spirit descending the steps. Two, three, four, five. And as you take each of these steps, there's just a sense of the body becoming more transparent and lighter. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you come to a landing and you stand there and feel your body. We're just beginning to go down these steps. And as you do, you begin to realize that you can't feel your feet so much anymore. They sort of dissolve into pulsing and then just light and space. And your legs start to dissolve into space. You're relaxing. And it's very pleasant and easy. And then you start to feel that sense of lightness and dissolution filling through the pelvis and the torso. You can't feel it in the normal way. It starts to dissolve into light and then just space and openness. And then it goes up through the shoulders and the arms and hands and up through the neck and head to the crown of the head. And the whole sense of your body gradually dissolving into light and then just into space. Cool, pleasant, empty, And now there's still a sense of presence and you walk down the next 10 steps to the next landing and feel the delight of this transparent body. Now, just imagining that you're descending the next 10 steps slowly on your own until you come very slowly to the second landing. And now there's this sense of emptiness and spaciousness and just consciousness itself, which will descend the last 10 steps down to a beautiful doorway that you'll stand in front of. And as you descend these steps, consciousness opens to time which is not bounded by an individual moment's identity, but that can really open to know time past and time future as the play of consciousness itself. And you're going down these steps just to allow consciousness to reveal itself to you. This mystery, since you are this mystery, and you feel yourself descending and find you're standing just in front of this door. Open, curious, spacious, just awareness itself now. And in a moment when you push on the door, it will swing open and you'll step into sunlight. And into, not yet, you'll step into the body of a previous life that has a lesson for you just now. None of these memories can harm you. They are only memories. They cannot cause you any harm, but rather 
They can illuminate what's true for you. So when you're ready to step into the body of a previous life that has a lesson for you, push the door, the beautiful door, gently and step into the sunlight. And first, look down at your feet as you stand there in this body and see what kind of feet you have. Are they young or old feet? Are they human feet or some other kind? Are there shoes or sandals or footwear? And then let your gaze come up and discover what kind of body you're in. A male or female body, what age you might be. And notice what it feels like to be in this body. And let yourself gaze around and look at the circumstances you find yourself in. You can know. You can at least get a sense of what continent you're on, of what era you are being alive in this incarnation, this life. There's a deep and simple knowing that comes just by asking, an intuitive response. What is my role in this life? And you can know. Are you in a village or a community? What are your relations? What is your place? Your task? now let the life unfold before you a little bit so you can see what your role is. If there's a call to explore a little further, to see more of how you live, you can follow this. most important now, let yourself be drawn to the circumstance that offers you the lesson from this life. There's something for you to learn that's important. So let the scene or the circumstances display 
the lesson or the show you the place where this learning is available. You can know, you can understand. And if there is then from that lesson anything else you want to ask, now you can do so. And now, to deepen the understanding, you can let yourself skip forward to the end of this life and see how you died. Let yourself picture and see, be led to how you died in this particular life. whether you're alone or whether there are others around you, whether you're young or old, and in what way, sickness or accident or battle or all the ways that humans might die. And let yourself experience the process of getting ready to die and of dying you're the witness to this all what this is like the emotions the lessons And then allow yourself to experience death itself. What happens when you die? You can see, you can know. And notice what it feels like as you die. And afterward, what you experience. what it's like to have left that life and body behind. Where are you now? A 
happened after a long time or a short time, because time here does not register in the same way. And after the experiences you are having beyond the body, notice if at some point there comes a calling, a pull, to again take birth in another form. And take now the understandings from the life that you've just visited, the lessons that come, the understandings of death and beyond. And imagine yourself now back at the bottom of those stairs of that beautiful stone staircase. And in spirit or in some form or other, walk back through the door and begin to climb up the stairs back to this world, to this time and place, to this incarnation with the body and community, culture you have. And as you mount the steps, you'll feel your feet coming back and your legs and pelvis coming back and your torso and shoulders coming back and arms and hands your neck and head and you'll feel your whole body return with its clothing and its garb with its particular memories and understandings and culture and views and loves and wisdom. And as you climb the steps near the top, the last step, six, five, four, you resume this life carrying the wisdom of this meditation and a sense of freedom and well-being that is deep and beautiful, a sense of gracious freedom that knows a truth beyond this limited identity, the taste of the deathless. Three, two, one, you will walk out into this life again, back to mental physics, physics, Joshua Tree, of carrying all that was of value to you and leaving anything else behind, you are now a wiser being from this voyage.
So a couple things to say as we conclude the practice. The first is um, don't use it to judge yourself. Might have shown you something interesting, great. It might not have. It's just not the morning for that. It could be tomorrow morning. and Instead, you'll do metta today and that will be the right practice or walking or something. We have all these practices and they're not in order to make something happen but to see, to discover what happened. If nothing came, fine. Or if there's some lesson in that for you, if you fell asleep the whole time, that also is a lesson. It might teach you something. And then if something did come, or you had images, in a moment or in a couple minutes we'll break into little groups so you have a chance to share. These images are a little like dream images in that they will fade um, if you don't pay attention to them and tend them. So when we're finished, um, if there was something of value, write it down. Write down the images, the circumstances, the lesson, whatever it is that you got from it so that you can contemplate it and remember it. So before we break into groups, let's just take uh, a few comments of for anyone that anything interesting happened. Well, I know you probably chose the stairs sort of arbitrarily, but I've had this recurring dream my whole life of walking up these stairs with all these different choices. And I've attributed all kinds of meanings to them, but always with a big question mark. Mm -hmm. So that, right away, I felt, is the moment this started, I felt I was at home in, in some really kind of scary way. Um, familiar, scary. And then the whole practice to me was very moving. I mean, it, I saw it, every piece of it I was aware of. What life did you find yourself in? I found myself, I looked down and I was, it was probably the 40s, judging from the shoes. And I looked down, they were men's shoes. They were really stiff men's shoes, something that I would never have chosen. I was in a suit, a very stiff suit, and one, you know, a hat. Um, and I was kind of like the character in Death of a Salesman. I was a, a man that had spent his whole life striving and missing, just missing everything. He lost his family, not because they died, but because he didn't know how to love them. And um, he died in a car accident. Mm. And what was it like when he died or when you died? Did you notice or track that at all? Yes, when I died, I noticed that I was just this, like, cloud. Mm -hmm. You know, just this wispy, wispy. And, and I was actually very content in that state, not eager to find a new life for myself. It was just okay. And it was actually very reminiscent of this cloud that was waiting at the beautiful door. So, thank you. Thank you. And then this time you found yourself back wanting to live a different kind of life than the one that was cut off from... And I have. And you have. Yeah, thank you. Take one more.
it's kind of amazing at times people will look down and their feet will be muddy and they're a farmer or they'll be a little girl even though they're a man and you know all these it I don't know where this comes from I mean I do know where it comes from actually but it's really from the consciousness itself and the collective that we live um, and this mysterious consciousness taking form go ahead please thanks so I found myself in Palestine at the time when Jesus was becoming um, well known mm-hmm. I never met him I was probably in my 20s and I was the apprentice to someone who became one of his disciples so the my boss was telling me I'm going to leave you with all this stuff because I'm going off and then um there was all this turbulence and um, strife and trouble around what Jesus was teaching. And, um, and then his mom was very upset when he was... It always happened. Yeah, yeah. Our I was trying to yes. console his mother when he was dead. Um, uh, and then... Um, how I died was I was um, plowing I was holding a thing that an ox was pulling and I tripped and I hit my head Mm. Mm. and then I could see myself just going up into the sky and I went by that time I was in my 40s and so I had kids and I felt okay they're going to be okay and then I too was like this is nice. I kind of like this. I'm just going to hang out here. And the takeaway lesson um, was do not be distracted by the political turmoil around these issues. The lesson is about wisdom and compassion. Thank you. Beautiful. Mysterious, isn't it? Really mysterious. But then again, life itself, having birth, is really mysterious. So I think, given our time, we've got about fifteen minutes or twenty. We'll take. We'll go into lunch a little bit. Hmm? We have ten. I know. What? We're going to push it. Okay. Make little groups, and you have um, ten to fifteen minutes. We'll let you know. Groups of three or four and share your stories. And if you don't have a story, you can listen to the others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.